Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On this show, many times we've talked about the models or simulations that are used to predict runaway global warming and global climate catastrophe. And we've talked about, and I've talked about in my book, how these models have been invalidated in the sense that they have been tasked with making even the most trivial of meaningful predictions and have completely failed. They have predicted runaway accelerating warming and no such thing has happened. Uh, but you may be wondering what exactly is going on in these models? What are they, uh, what are they doing? And we, we've talked about this a little bit with a couple guests, but I thought today we'd get into more depth about it. So we've brought in somebody who has been involved with the climate models since the beginning, and this is Professor Christopher Essex. And he has an extensive background in math and modeling, and he can tell us a lot about what's going on with these models, what can they do, what can't they do. Uh, I don't think he thinks they can do all that much. Uh, but anyway, I thought we'd get it from somebody who's been, in, again, involved since the beginning. So we will be back with Christopher Essex on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Professor Christopher Essex. Uh, of the University of Western Ontario in the Department of Applied Mathematics. Uh, Professor Essex, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you very much, Alex. All right. So we're going to talk today about climate modeling. And this is something you've had extensive experience in for a long time. So tell us how you got your start in terms of interacting with climate models. Uh, well, in the beginning, I was trained really as a theoretical physicist uh, with uh, the usual training in electromagnetism and quantum mechanics and, uh, and, and classical mechanics and thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. And uh, when I went to, um, my theme was to go into astrophysics, or my goal was to go into astrophysics. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I could go in and study atmospheres, in particular planetary atmospheres. And I quickly found myself uh, more or less un unintentionally working in the Earth's atmosphere. And I was confronted with the idea, this was the 1970s, I was confronted with the um, task of building a climate model uh, of the Earth. And so I was then working on the state of the art of climate models, um, in particular radiative models, which were fashionable in those days. Uh, I, you know, I can explain what that means, but it requires a bit of a um, but they weren't like the big general circulation model types, type of things. Uh, but one of the things that, that really struck me uh, and, and was bothered me right at the very beginning, I mean, I had to do everything by hand and build all these models up from scratch in those days because computer technology was not what it is today. And so you had to work with, with all kinds of details that you would do by hand and so forth. 
but I built built a radio conductive model and so forth. And uh, uh, one of the things that struck me at the time was just how well I don't know the word to describe this hokey models were. They were there was all kinds of fake kinds of ideas which were not often very well articulated uh, in terms of how they differed from the actual physics that they're meant to represent. But they were they were kind of they had a lot of weaknesses, and, and there was a good reason why they had to be done this way, because uh, the, the problems, the physical problems, were just so complicated and so difficult and so much beyond what human beings could do that you would make these kind of cartoon-like assumptions to make things simpler so you could cope with, uh, cope with actually you know, coding them and putting them into a computer and actually getting numbers out. So there was a kind of arbitrariness and I often use the analogy of uh, the cartoon character. It's like uh, the difference between uh, an actual mouse and Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's the <laughs> an actual duck and Donald Duck. I mean, that's that's what what models were in those days. But the uh, the illusion that people have uh, that modern climate models are any different at the fundamental level uh, is partly concealed by the the technicalities. Uh, the, uh, there's computer cachet, which you know, people are very you know, impressed by what computers do, um, because they don't know what goes on inside of them. Uh, but computers are inherently uh, tools, and they have limitations like any other tools. And once you understand the limitations, you realize that the climate problem is really way, way too big for modern computing. And so you, and a lot of stuff gets fake, just like in the original climate models. Uh, that I worked on. Then later on, uh, when I finished my PhD and went into uh, and became postdoc, I was with the Canadian Climate Center's uh, group that uh, has had a big general circulation model, and I discovered a lot of things about the limitations of models there, which I kind of already knew. And one of the things that was back in the early 80s, I decided at that point in my career that uh, I would start focusing on the more fundamental type issues that uh, were um, plaguing these models to see if there was some way to uh, work at these problems and see if some of them could be fixed or things could be improved. And so I really went more and more into theoretical physics applications and theoretical applications of computer science and so forth. And so most of the career I've been doing that kind of thing. So I've been working in thermodynamics and statistical mechanics and Things like that, and uh, and uh, other kinds of more mathematical things, and I've kind of left left climate behind as much as I could because I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. Uh, in terms of science, in terms of politics, and the world stage, it's, it's a totally different thing. But um, then, around 1988 or 1990 or so, I um, I uh, was kind of started to get dragged back into this subject. And my reaction was, there's, you know, there's no hope of actually predicting anything in a coherent way, or even knowing what we're actually wanting to predict. And so it's, it's a, because we're engaging at levels with some of the most fundamental problems of modern science, of the real frontiers of modern science. And it's completely opposite of the uh, kind of scenario where these are all solved problems and it's a simple problem and everything else. This is the opposite of a simple problem. I mean, all of the, the physics is connected to, I mean, it's very easy for me to, to connect everything to things like the clay millennium problems and so forth. I mean, 
it's that that level. I mean, the seven uh, un greatest unsolved problems in mathematics. I mean, that's you know, each with a million dollar prize. It connected two of those clay millennium problems to climate problems. So it's a, it's a, it, it's it's not just some trivial point. So. All right. Thanks for that overview. I want to drill down into a couple of aspects of this, since I think in our audience, we have a range of mathematical and scientific backgrounds. And, and even the more sophisticated, I think, have, have a lot to learn here. So let's go back to your involvement in modeling climate. I want to ask, what was the purpose in doing that? Because my sense that the, is that the purpose today is to uh, the basic assignment, as, a, as far as I can see, that climate scientists are given is to show ways in which CO2 is, quote unquote, disrupting the climate system and, and ruining the planet. I mean, that's, that's essentially what the project is rather than understanding the dynamics of the climate, climate rather. I wonder if back then when you were starting out, there was a more honest interest in understanding the dynamics of climate or whether it was already uh, a skewed more political priority. Well, nothing can compare to um, the way things have been in the past 20 years. I mean, or 30 years, actually, I guess it's, um, it's getting there. I mean, it'll be 30 years in, in, nine, in 2018. I mean, it's, uh, since two, 1988 is what I call the beginning of the real climate fervor. Uh, before 1988, you know, before Hansen had his uh, famous uh, um, uh, testif uh, testifying exercise and before uh, Congress, um, things were a little bit uh, less crazy. Uh, but the atmosphere, I mean, even in the early 80s, there was still, you know, a kind of a sense that the problem was all very simple. And uh, and uh, I think I wrote my first article uh, explaining why climate models can't forecast. They can't actually predict things uh, when we don't know essential components of the structure. Back in the early 80s, and even then, I remember having trouble with that. And uh, usually by people who didn't know anything about models. At that point, I was actually part of the general circulation modeling group, so I actually knew quite a bit about what was inside these models and what wasn't inside these models. But I would still get people telling me, oh, well, you know, you don't know anything about GCMs, general circulation modelers, <laughs> modeling. But I did, and, uh, I mean, the, the, the models didn't shake off or didn't solve the problems in the original radiative convective type models. They introduced a kind of a new dynamic, a new aspect to it, but the fundamental issue of energy transport between the ground and space was still mostly um, using uh, empirical representations and, um, and still is today because it's beyond the capability of of our our technology to be able to capture in in using the full equations and the full physics. So, if, if the traditional narrative we hear about this, you know, from in the media and then made more technical in places like skepticalscience.com and and uh, James Hansen's book Storms of My Grandchildren and in, and pretty much everything Bill McKibben writes. There's a consistent narrative that this is a very simple type of issue because we have this, you know, these greenhouse gases slash infrared absorbers in the atmosphere 
uh, there's going to be more energy in the atmosphere, and then they'll they'll you know rate that and and uh, they'll compare that to the number of you know Hiroshima A bombs to make it seem really really big, and then they'll say, well, this is just it's just physics. There's no even Hansen will say, well, of course he's made a lot of models that have failed, but then he'll say, well, it's not really about models. It's just about this basic physics that we know, and therefore we can proceed in dismantling the fossil fuel economy. And we, we can know for certain that this is going to lead to runaway warming. So what what is wrong with that uh, in connection with all the things you've discussed about how there's many aspects of uh, um, the climate, including how energy uh, exists within the climate, that, that we don't know mathematically or physically? Uh, I mean, that question is so wide and so... I mean, I don't even know where to begin with something like that. I mean, it's, there's so much that's wrong with how this problem is formulated from top to bottom. I mean, the obsession with energy, this uh, simplicity of the thing where they all think that the Earth is basically analogous to a one giant hot brick with one temperature orbiting the Earth and so forth. I mean, it's just, it's just it's so... It just leaves me speechless. I just don't know what sometimes to say. But I mean, the, if I can sort of go back to the uh, the notion of temperature, first of all, the, the idea that that climate is temperature is is something that dates back to well, certainly when in the computer age, it dates back to the 1960s. Um, there was certain papers by um, by Manabi and uh, and uh, Strickler and Manabi and Weatherall where they basically had a very simple model, which is known as a radiative convective model, where in essence the entire Earth is characterized by uh, a, 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 um, a, a temperature as a, as a function of height. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with words because I don't want to use words that will throw people off. So, But at each height there's a temperature and the model basically calculates that. Um, and so the, the climate then is represented by a single temperature at the surface. And uh, and so if climate change then is when that temperature changes, it goes up or goes down. And of course that's, well, that's all you can do in that model is the way it's designed because there's no other sort of degree of freedom in it and that's, that's it. But um, uh, climate uh, itself is much, much more subtle and complex an idea than that. I mean, it's not just simply a, a simple temperature. It, it's 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 almost like I think maybe I might if I, should I proceed technically or should I go by analogy? I, I'm not sure. I think I'll go by analogy. If yeah, I mean I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll 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 steer if I feel like it's going too much one way. Or okay, the other. I mean if 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 I go by analogy about what climate is, first of all, we don't have a physically based definition of climate, and temperature is not it. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not. I mean, that number that they quote all the time and they call that temperature, um, well, first of all, it's not a physical temperature. It's, it's an average of temperatures over a scalar field. And it's, it's one value. And if that goes up by a, by a few tenths of a degree, there's no physical argument that that has any implications for local conditions. There's, there's just isn't any. No one's ever been... They just argue. They hand wave it the same way they did in the 1960s. They still hand wave that sort of thing today. I mean, if it goes up by a tenth of a degree or even if it doesn't change, I mean, it's very easy to imagine that that number stays exactly the same, but that climate change takes place anyway. I mean, in other words, you can have a situation where that number stays completely fixed, but all the local climates are different. 
So that number itself is not climate, and it doesn't drive anything because a single physical quantity doesn't actually drive any process. You have to have at least two different physical uh, two parameters. You have to have two different temperatures to make things go. You have to have two different pressures to make things go. You can't get by with just one temperature. Nothing happens, right? I mean, if it's in thermodynamic equilibrium, that's when you have one temperature. So nothing happens in thermodynamic equilibrium. So if you want things to change, you have to have more than one value. And, and so a single temperature can't represent the processes that take place on Earth. So all of those things in the original model are just kind of faked over. So, for example, um, the lower part of the atmosphere is called the troposphere. It's about maybe uh, you know 10 to 14 kilometers you know and below, and uh, that's where you know all the thunderstorms happen and everything else. It's where the, the the winds take place and the convection in the boiling atmosphere happens and so on. If you want to represent what goes on there, you have to capture this phenomenon called convection, and you have to be able to capture turbulence. Well, turbulence, turbulent motion is one of the things that is right up there is one of the really unsolved problems of science. It's been known for, well, pretty much understood, at least mathematically, for 150 years, and we still haven't solved this problem in any rigorous way. And uh, and so things like thunderstorms and things like that, you can kind of characterize them, you know, again, cartoonize them in a way and kind of try to understand things. And there's a place for that kind of analysis. But you can't actually predict it deterministically the way we can the orbits of planets and so forth. I mean, it's a, it's a different kind of uh, numerical thing. Anyway, so if you want to capture the lower the lower part of the atmosphere, you cannot do it by radiation alone. And that's one of the problems that people have. The reason why they think it's a simple problem is because they think it's just, as you were saying, energy in and energy out. And it's not. Um, uh, because you have this lower atmosphere where you have this boiling taking place in the atmosphere and you have this... this and it, what it does is it actually adds air conditioning on the surface. So the boiling or the motion, the physical motion of en or movement of energy away from the surface to higher up in the atmosphere and ultimately to space is dynamical, not radiative. And so um, at least at least half of it. I mean, so in other words, it, the, the dynamical part is as much a part of it as the radiation. So if you actually want to compute the temperature at the surface from first principles, you can't do it with radiation alone. If you just if you said there was only radiation. The the uh, the surface temperature would be something like uh, uh, 60 degrees Celsius, which would be like 140 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So it's that much of a cooling effect. So the only way in which you can actually capture what's going to happen temperature-wise at the surface is you, you have to do some kind of an adjustment to allow for this convective thing. And so the, in the original papers in the 1960s, they did something called convective adjustment, where they faked the dynamics by adjusting the slope of the temperature uh, profile. And um, and what they do in climate models now is they still have to fake the convection. They don't do it in quite a simplistic way, but they still fake it. And so all you have to do is just get different convection, and uh, the whole the whole ballgame is done up. So it's like having an a uh, greenhouse, but an air, uh, a greenhouse with air conditioning and blinds, because you also have clouds, neither of which you have control of or, no, or knowledge of. So it be, what becomes predictable at 
first becomes actually quite unpredictable if you don't know what the air conditioning or, or the, the blinds are set at. So, so it, it, it's not simple in that sense at all. I mean, it's not even remotely simple because that turbulence thing and so forth is connected to the, I mean, one of the clay millennium problems is actually getting a solution to, to the Navier-Stokes equations, which are the ones that govern the, the fluid flow um, and the cooling process moving away from the surface. And of course, it's not just tra straight turbulence. It's also in entrained. We have entrained um, uh, moisture, so it's it's a more complicated form. The classical turbulence theory guys work with dry air or dry fluids. They don't deal with entrained fluids, which makes the whole thing a whole order of magnitude more complicated. Uh, and uh, and we don't have rigorous solutions for this. We do not. So. That's just talking about even getting the temperature right, and then I also alluded to the idea that the temperature itself is, in fact, not the climate. And one of the things that I often have tried to convey to people is, how, how, what kind of metaphor can I use? And the best one I can think of is a musical metaphor. If you think of you know, the idea, the simplistic idea, is they think of a climate as a musical note, sort of like the note G, and the climate change is the switch from G to, say, C. But that's not what we experience. We don't experience a constant note and then a new note. What we experience is more like a sequence of things happening. Oh, it's cold period, warm period, rain, and so forth. So what you actually get is, is a melody. I mean, you get a bunch of notes. And what you can really think of it as, you can imagine that climate as being the composer of the notes. So the particular weather you're experiencing is a particular musical piece, and then you could see the complete works of that particular composer. That's climate. So, so Bach, maybe the climate is currently Bach, and now climate changes when Bach switches to Beethoven. But you can't really take the average musical note of Bach and compare it to the average musical note of Beethoven and then identify necessarily that the... Um, they, they, the change has taken place, or even recognize which whether you've got Bach or Beethoven to begin with. So, I, I, if you see what I mean, it's not com it's, it's complicated. It's not simple. Well, t to to continue that <laughs> analogy, I, I want to push back on that. And well, uh, talk about in what sense climate applies there, because I think climate is 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 reified like many things in discussion. So that you talk about the climate as if there's just yeah. some single thing, whereas Climate as we experience it is completely local. Like I, you know, I never experienced the global climate. Now, elements of the global climate system can obviously influence the local climate, and that's part of the study that we're talking about here. But how does your musical note analogy relate to that? Because in let's take what I'm experiencing right now in Laguna Beach. The last week was hot, and I needed to use my air conditioning, and then this week was cold, and I need to wear long sleeves and and jeans. And so climate just changed in that local sense. Now people can say, well, it's the long-term average and it's not the same thing as weather. But I mean, in a certain sense, it's, 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 it has to do with local trends. So I want to I know how your analogy applies to that. Uh, well, you see, I, I wouldn't separate it the way you do. I mean, you're, you're thinking of space and time as being two different things. So you have like a spatial locality, but time, you can have time average. But you think of it as space and time together, then that's kind of the way I was approaching it. So, 
So, you know, choose a location and a particular time, you get one thing, and then, then you could be singing a song here, and then you could uh, have a whole orchestration, which you could think of as the, you know, the you know this is what the bassoon is playing, that's over, you know, in Laguna Beach, and the, the drums are playing over in Vancouver or something like that. So, you know, you can have a whole orchestration, right? And so you can still have, you can make the analogy as complicated, I mean, add in more detail if you want, but uh, the reality is that you have this, this collection of notes that are being played at any particular instant. I mean, in a full, fully orchestrated symphonic representation is not a single note, right? So. Well, one one implication that I take from what you're saying is 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 a, a different view of changing climate than we currently hear. I mean, to take the most extreme characterization of Bill McKibben, he describes it as we've broken the climate or we've destabilized climate. So change, yeah, change has yeah. a normative thing and any, there's this assumption that any man-made impact must be bad versus, oh, this is just a different, you know, this is just a different symphony and we need to adjust, you know, we need to maximize what we like and minimize. Uh, I didn't say different stuff. symphony. I said different composer for climate. It's, Switching from Bach to Beethoven, I mean, you know, Beethoven might do the ninth, and then the next you get, next time you get, uh, you might get the Be Beethoven's fifth, but it's still still the same climate. So in other words, you might have a cold year, you might have a warm year. I mean, you might have lots of snow here and extra cold over there. I mean, that, that's there, that's just the melody, and it's just a part of the same, exploring the same part of the the, the phase space of uh, the physical system. Um, climate change has got to be characterized as some kind of switch to a different place and phase space where it explores a different regime of phase space that, that you don't encounter normally. And that's, that, you know, is the best intuitive way of thinking of what, what, what we should be talking about. The problem is that while I can make this metaphorical representation, I cannot write a rigorous definition of climate in the sense of putting on my mathematician's hat there's no rigorous definition of climate and there's no physically based rigorous definition of climate it doesn't we don't have anything emerging in nature where we can actually grab onto it so what we what we've been doing is using stand-in things for what we think is there these proxy things like you know averages over the scalar temperature field and things like that and it's pretty much that's that's it. They don't really get much beyond that. Maybe a little bit about rainfall or something like that. I mean, it's, they don't really get much beyond that. But I mean, you know, if you think about it, I mean, where you are, I mean, or even where, say say where, you know where I am in Canada. I mean, if you have the transition from winter to spring. I mean, uh, how does that transition take place? I mean, you have the you know warming, and what you get is you get a sequence of weather events, and you get. Uh, maybe some storminess and some cold spells and some warm spells. And you can imagine taking, say, the month of April, for example, and uh, uh, taking the weather from a bunch of Aprils over, over the past thousand years or something, and then and then defining weather types and then scrambling up the sequence that you get the same weather. So the average over April would be the same. You, would assume, you could assume, you just select the ones that have the same average of some kind. And just re rearranging the sequence that you get the weather. So in other words, you get a late frost as opposed to an early, an early frost. And now if it became persistently a late frost, then suddenly now people would argue the climate's changed. But the average would be unchanged. I mean, that's 
that's over April. I mean, that's that's the point is that you haven't really nailed anything down by quoting just some some random off the street average. You just go mug an average off the street and say, okay, now you're climate, right? I mean, that's not the way it works. I mean. So out and play devil's advocate on this. So someone <laughs> could say, well, okay, you're right, Chris, that we can't simulate all these different dynamics of climate. Or we don't understand how all the drivers uh, interact. Maybe we don't even have an exact definition of what it is when we're talking about climate. But nevertheless, can't we have a physical understanding of this one variable and its necessary consequences and then draw implications, including negative implications from that. So in this case, it would be CO2 primarily. In the same way that, let's say, a certain economist could say, well, if you quadruple the money supply, you know, if the government quadruples the money supply or decuples it or whatever, okay, we don't know exactly how to predict economies, but we know that's going to lead to inflation and that's going to lead to a whole other set of ramifications. So the idea that you don't know, need to know exactly how the whole system works to know that there's a negative impact on the system. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I want to go back. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to this question in a moment. I want to go back to something else that was said. Um, uh, I think it was McKibben or whatever was saying something about change and about climate change. But and they, you know we've broken the system and everything else. It's been changed in some fashion. The problem is that if you're in an environment where everything's changing all the time, which it is. I mean, and it's changing from our point of view, in a big way. I mean, you know, to, you know I, I, I was, you know, one, you know, year versus another year can be vastly different in terms of things on a human scale. It could be very warm or it could be very cold. And you can, you know, one day could be you know, 10 degrees warmer than the next day and so forth. I mean, these can be wet and the next day it can be go through a sequence of sunniness and so on. So the point is we know that even if you just step outside, you know, you might, things might be calm, and then you might get a burst of wind. I mean, so suddenly it's very windy, and then, then the wind will stop. And this phenomenon in turbulent systems known as intermittency. You know, these, you know, everything's fine, and then bang, you know, all the papers are blown off the table, and then, and then, then it's calm again, and you think it's fine, and then there's another burst, you know. I mean, so you have these short time scale changes, and, and locally other people nearby might not have experienced that at all. So these are local and they're over short time scales. And then there are things that are kind of a little bit, you know, the nearest few kilometers. And then there's another one, another scale over a day or so forth. And then they get scales in the weeks to months. And then you got scales over the whole planet and, uh, and so on. And the problem is that things are changing on all time scales and all space scales up to the whole you know, as far back in time as we can see, things are changing all the time. And over all space scales, we know they're changing. So the problem with climate is always what part of the change do we get to throw away and call climate? So this, there's this weather stuff, and then there's this local phenomena stuff, and there's this weather stuff, and there's this climate stuff. We don't really have a good idea of which part to throw away and which part to keep to define climate. So if someone's talking about the climate system having been broken or anything else, I have no idea how they could even make that claim. I don't even know what they're talking about. I don't think they know, they know what they're talking about. So that's, I had to respond to that. So now you are being introducing a new dimension to this, which is 
uh, what should we do about it? Is, is, is that correct? It's like, you know... No, no, not, I, I wouldn't put it that way. It's, it's just the... You focus so far on the, the complexity of the system and our demonstrable inability to understand the different drivers and, and how they interact and what all of that will mean. But I was playing devil's advocate and saying, okay, even if I stipulate that, can't I say that by increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 280 ppm to 400 ppm and beyond, it, their, their view is since we know these are infrared absorbers, since we know that that means more energy in the system, that even if we, we can't predict exactly how that'll all play out, you know, even if there's a quote-unquote pause once in a while, we know that over time this is going to lead to runaway global warming in the same way that someone could say that a certain government policy of printing more and more money could lead to runaway inflation. And they'd point to, hey, what happened in the Weimar Republic and what happened in Brazil when you did this? So, yeah, sure, our ability to print economies is far from perfect, but we can know that this one variable is a destructive uh, variable. So it's that argument that I'm well, there's so, there's so, there's so much there's so much about the physics that's kind of wonky, and uh, usually this whole business of heat trapping is kind of a very conventional way of writing this, uh, discussing this whole thing. And of course, that's that's a pure radiation argument. It's purely by radiative transfer as opposed to fluid mechanics. So it's the Navier-Stokes equation for fluids and the equation of transfer for radiation. So that's that's the heat trapping argument that you're saying. And of course. The heat trapping argument is kind of well, it's sort of sort of kind of wrong. Um, I mean, what what you have if you look at the equation of transfer uh, is you have two terms. You have uh, the rate of change of the radiation as you move through along a, 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 a ray of, of light, a light ray. Um, the rate of change of the amount of radiation in the beam uh, is reduced by absorption, but it is uh, increased by emissions. So there's simultaneous emission. So the reason why things are warm in a, in a, um, in, in, it's not because heat, whatever that is, 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 I mean, the heat is like an 18th century idea that persists in, in meteorology and climate. It's, it's, a, it's about in the, in the modern view, it's, it's, a, it's, it's has to do with losses. When you have a process, you have work and you have heat, heat is the losses in some sort of a process. It's not a substance in itself, and in the in the 18th century they thought it was a substance. It was called caloric, and it was kind of like the 18th century version of the earlier version of phlogiston, which is what fire was made out of. So they think of heat as like some kind of substance, um, and so so um, there really isn't any heat. It's 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 you have internal energy, but but heat as such is just the energy lost in a in a particular process. So. That the, you know, the uncontrolled uh, dimensions or degrees of freedom and so forth. I mean, that's that's what it is. So um, uh, it's not so much about heat trapping. If you think about the equation of transfer, you have these two terms. One is the emission term. So what it means, if you lay on some carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, some extra carbon dioxide, what you're getting in practice to somebody who's down below, what they're experiencing is they're experiencing a whole bunch of new emitters. So it's like little glowing coils in your toaster. I mean, you're adding more coils, so that's why it gets warmer. I mean, that's that's where it seems warmer um, from a thermodynamic point of view. I mean, that's 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 the real reason. So it's not so much heat trapping as it's it's this 
energy flow is redirected back in. I mean, that's that's kind of what what's going on. So think of heat coils, and that's the emission term in the equation of transfer. Um, so so to sort of get back in, we draw some kind of conclusions from this uh, um, anyway, and uh, and so forth. Well, not really, because the, uh, the the premise of the argument was that this thing called global temperature was increasing, and so therefore that that means warming. But uh, I'm arguing that the that uh, that global temperature thing isn't actually a temperature, and when it goes up, it's an index of some kind. And and does that actually constitute warming? Does it actually have any really uh, real direct physical consequences for anybody? And uh, and it's not clear that it does. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think that other people share my view on that, but uh, I, I don't see that it does. No one's made an argument that I've ever really understood uh, on its physical grounds. Well, w imagine that it was a significant jump in this, you know, this non-temperature, but I think it's the global mean temperature anomaly. And if you look at these historical, uh, the historical representations of the anomaly or of the global temperature, you see that certainly long, long ago, you have much higher values. And the question is, if so if it was, if you take the predictions, let's take the predictions. So Hansen in 1986 publicly said between the year 2000 and 2010, there will be an uh, increase between two and four degrees Fahrenheit. So that, yeah, that did not happen at all. Uh, but I can imagine if, if with any of these stats, if it went up by that degree uh, compared to being relatively speaking flat before that, wouldn't that, that, and that's what they predict, wouldn't that be, if they could make that prediction accurately, wouldn't that be uh, significant? Or even right now, you see them making these predictions of up to, I don't know, seven degrees Celsius by the year 2100, based on this idea that... <laughs> yes, I know. That's right. Yeah, I know they make these predictions. I don't know what they mean, but it's okay. Um, uh... Yeah, I mean they, these numbers. I mean they they throw these numbers out, and I don't think they necessarily mean a whole lot. I mean it's just the the problem is that you've got the situation where you know, you've got to link it up somehow with historical climate, and of course the only way people can actually bring in well or prehistorical climate, the only way that they can bring that in is by various proxy measures, and what those things mean. Uh, very interesting data sets, and I think there's a lot of you know worthwhile things to do with that. And I've met some of the people who have done this kind of stuff, and and I you know I respect what they do and so forth. And I don't want to be, make it seem like I don't think they should be doing that, or that they shouldn't even maybe make speculate about it's something like a temperature, but it's not temperature in the meteorological sense. I mean, how you know, where you actually go out with a thermometer and you measure it and so forth, and you have to then reconstruct this thing and actually, you know, how do you map meteorological temperatures onto those things? It's not uh, not even remotely clear what the connection is. It's a kind of a very sketchy thing. Okay, so uh, it changes by a few degrees. Um, what does that actually mean? And uh, it, if if you imagine that you do compute an average and you have a bunch of values and you're going to allow it to go up in some places and down in other places and so on, if you just allowed the temperature to increase everywhere by four degrees, say, which I think is what you consider to be um, provocative, if the temperature was four degrees Celsius warmer out today 
than you expected it to be? Would it really make any difference to you? And the answer is no. If you, if you, I mean, and that's considered to be really extreme. Four degrees, seven, of course, is you know way more, but but four degrees is considered really extreme. Would that be the case? So what you have to suppose, if that's significant, is you have to suppose something else is going on. That it's not, it's not just a uniform increase of all values. That some places it's got to be way larger, and other places somewhat smaller, and and so forth. And so you it sort of averages out to that value and then you then infer some kind of physical processes that have been altered because of this and so on. But if you just let everything uniformly be changed by plus four degrees, you're not changing any of the gradients anywhere. So the processes would probably not be a whole lot different. There'd be a little bit change in in melting, I suppose, where you know where the the boundaries are. But you could probably imagine tucking that those parts of the temperature field in such a way that Nothing changes there. So I'm just trying to come up with a way in which you could imagine nothing really remarkable happens with that value because it it, it is an integral. It's not it's not actual local processes. Local processes are what where pro, where the physics happens, not in the in the global part of this. This is an old problem. I mean, it goes right back to the original papers I told you about the, the Manabi and and Strickler paper. Um, where they originally uh, built their radioconvective model and they said, okay, uh, uh, let's double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And then they saw, oh, the surface temperature only changed by one degree. So they decided that one degree was not significant. I don't know why. They just decided one degree was not significant. It could be that one degree is significant. It could be zero is significant. I mean, in terms of the underlying processes being rearranged and so on as a result of that, it could be. But suppose they decided one wasn't significant. So they said, now how can we fix that? Well, one of the things they decided is, well, if it gets a little warmer, that means we're going to evaporate more water. And so now we have more water in the atmosphere. And the water is where the real action is, the real, that's where the, the you know, real going concern is when it comes to uh, infrared radiation gases or greenhouse gases as people call them instead of IR gases. So um, that's, it's like way, way more than CO2. And, you know, if you, if you, without that, and so they were able to double, so it went to two degrees by allowing the amount of water vapor in some arbitrary way, it's called fixed relative humidity, to, um, to change. And so suddenly it became a much bigger uh, result. Uh, but it's very easy to make some other ad hoc assumptions in a model that will say, well, maybe the convection is going to change. So maybe the lapse rate should change a certain amount. Maybe it should be, instead of 6.5, maybe 6.2 kelvins per kilometer. And now suddenly the surface temperature doesn't change at all. And who is to say that that shouldn't happen? Because the 6.5 number is not a basic number. It's an ad hoc number that uh, descends from from uh, aircraft performance and standard atmospheres and trying to um, set up barometers to be altimeters and things like that. So it's a bunch of arbitrary decisions that have been made that are convenient but not, um, not uh, physically based. Throughout this interview, you've elaborated many, many ways in which uh, the field of climate science is unable to uh, truly simulate uh, what's going on because there's just a lack of understanding 
of all kinds of uh, drivers of climate. And yet, over the past several decades, the, the public positioning of this field has been one of oracles who know exactly how climate works and can foretell with certainty things like exactly how many gigatons of coal will lead to exactly how much warming and that two degrees Celsius is a point of no return and we need to agree oh, yeah. to do this mm -hmm. and all this stuff. So mm -hmm. as, as somebody who's been educated in this and has been in it for, for decades, what has your experience been like if we sort of take a time series of, I'm just, I can't even imagine what it's like to observe this lunacy is too charitable a term because there's a lot of mendacity to it. I call it a uh, tragic comedy is what, what I call it. But um, <laughs> people want debates. And I've been invited to participate in debates uh, over time. And of course, I have my own style of debates. And um, back in the, well, put it this way, in, in the beginning, I mean, when, when I was writing uh, Taken by Storm with Ross McKittrick and just after that, you know, that's when this whole um, man uh, hockey stick thing came out and so forth. And um, I got to see the drafts of, uh, of Steve, uh, Steve uh, McIntyre and Ross um, uh, early on before they submitted some of the, the things, before they got into the big controversy about the hockey stick and so on. But I, I didn't want to participate in this myself. I mean, I got to see the drafts. I didn't want to say, oh, well, I'd like to be on this paper or whatever, because I didn't really believe the whole framework that the because I don't really think it matters uh, whether that number is going up or not. I don't see the physical basis of it. I mean, if you actually force the thing onto an actual physical temperature scale like Kelvin scale, the whole thing is just completely flat. I mean, if you it's just <laughs> they always throw it in these like tenth of a degree precision as if that actually means anything. But anyway, that's a, um, but I, so I don't, I try to avoid doing debates that way, you know, yeah, really it's going up or whether it's not going up and whether people have adjusted the statistics the correct way and so forth, because I think the whole thing is, has no physical consequences for all the things that people worry about because that number is not good enough to tell us about things like that. Um, and so it's very hard to actually, in my view, have a, a public debate because the debates themselves um, don't allow any discussion about the scientific technicalities. So um, the actual subject matter, which I regard as the subject matter, is actually out of bounds in the debate about that subject. I mean, what, how bizarre is that? I mean, that's it's like, yeah, we can debate it, but we actually can't talk about what the subject, what the debate is about, because that's out of bounds for the debate. I mean, it's like, that's that's insane. You know, that's that's the way it goes. And so the result is the only thing we can re really talk about is is the other person, you know, I don't like your shoes, you know, I don't like your mother, you know, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the way climate debates actually take place. And so you can't actually talk about the, the actual sub subject. And so for me, it's a kind of cultural madness. I mean, it's, uh, there's no way to discuss the thing. So this is one of the few times I actually am discussing the actual content. Well, I, I, I want to tell you how I approach it 
and see what you think in relation to, to how you're approaching because obviously my, I don't have the technical expertise, but uh, in my book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, the basic premise is that the only reason to care about any of this stuff is insofar as it impacts human life. So the, the moral and moral case is, is human life. And I think from that perspective, my own thinking about climate has been shaped a lot because I see all these obsessive debates about you know, these numbers and these tenths of degree. And yet if I look at climate as it actually impacts people, what we see pretty clearly, just even by common sense, is that climate is inherently variable, volatile, and vicious to people unless they figure out a way to master it through industrialization and technology. And the numbers of, say, climate-related deaths bear that out, where you see dramatic decreases in the number of climate-related deaths because there has been no sort of hellish overall change in global climate, but there's been an incredible ability in, in man's capacity uh, to adapt to and, and, uh, and master uh, the inherently variable climate. So at least in that sense, my, I feel like there's some similarity because I do not participate in these discussions about tenths of a degree or warmest year ever because they're not actually or even two degree limit because I see no evidence whatsoever that those matter for human life, whereas the fossil fuels that are allegedly causing that matter tremendously. So I'm curious what you think about that. Uh, well, I, there's really two different issues. There's the, the actual science, which is what I have always been interested in, what's actually true. And I think there's some really utterly fascinating stuff that, that I'm working on right now. I mean, I, I'm just having a great time trying to re-engineer physics so that it would work for climate and actually define what it is we want for this notion of climate. So I'm working on it theory for climate. I don't know if I'll do, pull that off in my lifetime, but I'm doing my level best. And I've, you know, I had a lot of, you know, great, cool things come out of that. But the problem is that the, the actual audience for that sort of thing is very, very, very small. I mean, the number of people who can understand it or even are interested in it is very, very, very small. So it's, it's hard to publish. And it's, you know, and so that's the scientific issue. There really should be many people working on this, but most people are caught up in the whole sort of the usual grant cycle and trying to think about what policymakers want, and uh, which of course is exactly not what science is supposed to be about. They should be discovering new things, and then the policymakers should say, "Oh, that's a cool thing you discovered. I think that has implications for this and that." So they have the other issues: what to do about it. So you have the science, and then there's this, then the issue of what to do about it, and that's where policy takes place. They're two different things, and they, as long as they can coexist separately, they're fine. But when you try to somehow get them mixed up together so that some science that scientists are doing policy and policy guys are saying what the science is, um, then after a while you end up with a big mess. And that's what, what we're in right now is a situation where people don't actually know about anything and it's impossible everyone's terrified and nobody wants to, to, to i i advise young people not to go into this field uh because of the problems with it and so they the, the, the whole field is kind of frozen and locked down because it can't it can't get past its own simplistic assumptions which are kind of imposed on it by by policy thinking and people who you know, po political activists and so forth who have 
really no idea of the of the reality and the subtleties of the, that are involved here. Um, and so they, they've done a tremendous disservice. I mean, and science has been terribly, terribly damaged in terms of the sociological aspect of it, in terms of collegiality and so forth. I mean, I don't know if we've probably been set back a generation by this. I mean, in terms of how far advanced we could be versus where we are now. In terms of fossil fuels and so on, I think people get worked up about things that they don't actually understand. And if you think that so many tons corresponds to a certain amount of climate change, this is just complete gibberish. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's no, it's a very long chained hand wavy kind of argument to get to that connection and to make it that precise. There's no real scientific justification for that. And, and I, of course, now if taking off my science hat and putting on my human hat, um, I agree with you. I think that people need fuels. I mean, and the thing about fossil fuels is they have energy density and they have um, um, they have consistency. So you can deliver the energy you need in the place you need it when you need it. And I don't think that we've come up with a better way to do that. I mean, if we could come up with an Another way to do that is uh, then then I'm sure it would happen. Nuclear power is another way. I mean, uh, but both of those things are politically um, um, un, unacceptable, but for reasons that really don't actually warrant any scrutiny. So that's how I take that. <laughs> so as we wrap up, um, any other comments you have? on the state of climate science or climate modeling or anything else about the discussion in the culture today? Uh, I, I, I'm kind of a little bit exhausted by it. I mean, I, I always, I, for me being involved in this, I'm not like a lot of the kind of fashionable things that you see now. Oh, yes, I had one point of view, and then I had the epiphany, and now I've changed. I, I've always thought there was something weak about this, Right from the very my first encounter with it, I mean, way back when, uh, and I've there's been nothing that has changed at the fundamentals. We haven't really advanced the whole business of of complexity, and uh, yeah, I mean that in the mathematical formal sense. It, it is just as daunting for us now as as it always has been in the business of turbulence and just handling enormous amounts of data and so forth. It's just really beyond. I mean, Google and so forth, when we're talking about handling data, it seems like, well, we can handle that. Why can't we handle this? But the problem with mathematics is that there are things out there that are just, you know, far grander than you could, than you know, even your biggest imagination could could um, could uh, encompass. I mean, and so a lot of these processes are really beyond uh, beyond us. And I think it's important that people understand that. It's important that people understand the limitations of things like computers, and they're not. It's not really that hard to understand. I mean, you, you can show people some examples of where computers get it wrong, but in school they get taught to use computers instead of thinking with for yourself. So you, you know, that that in itself is a problem. They sort of create this kind of uh, the, uh, mystique about computers and com computation and so forth, which isn't there. People don't understand about measurement, so they don't understand the limitations of actually just measuring something. And so they don't understand that. They don't, and so, so it's very hard for people to kind of grasp how all of these 
things come together in a kind of perfect storm of complexity in the case of climate. And um, and so they, it's much easier just to pretend it's not there. So they, you pretend it's not there, and then it becomes something that uh, political um, people can get a hold of. And I think in the end, if people reason only by expertise, which is what they're doing, they're saying, well, these experts told me this, so therefore um, this is the position I'm going to take. If you reason by that, you have you have a problem in, in a situation like climate, not for when you do plumbing or something like that. I mean, plumber is an expert. Let them do what they want. But you still know whether the toilet works after the plumber fixed it. But you don't even know, if you don't even have a definition for climate, you don't even know if it's even broken, contrary to McGibbon. I mean, we broke it. Well, how do you know? I mean, you don't know that it's broken. You don't even have a definition. I mean, you can choose, you choose whatever definition you want. Okay, according to that definition, it's broken, but so what if that definition is defective, right? So, I mean, you don't even know uh, what, 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 the, what the issue is. So you can't just rely upon experts to tell you how to do things. And the problem is that if you can get control of the experts, then you control everything if people all just follow what the experts tell them. And that's really what's been happening. I mean, look at the very open interventions against people who question these things. I mean, with Willie Soon and with, with ClimateGate and, uh, and, some, and other examples where, there, where you can see that, that it becomes uh, uh, desirable to actually, actually do a political intervention against scientists who are asking legitimate scientific questions, which the people who are doing these interventions don't even understand what the questions are. And so they, they, they just are doing harm that they don't even understand. It's, it's just, to me, the whole thing is just appalling, just appalling. <laughs> but that said, that's human beings. So human beings do this kind of thing, and uh, you have to get used to it. Well, I agree with all of that except for the last sentence <laughs> Or at least, at least getting used to it, and I think that your work uh, is is definitely helpful on this count. And I definitely look forward to hearing more as you go forward about the the fundamental theoretical work you're doing. And and I think this podcast will be helpful for a lot of people. A lot of people who listen to this are people who are very active, and I think it'll give them some some new ideas about how to think about climate and how to question some of their assumptions. So, uh, Chris, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Alex. Thanks again to Professor Essex for coming on the show. I found that interview definitely more intellectually challenging than average for a couple of reasons. One is that higher math is is not uh, not my thing. So I mean, he's you know he's obviously into to very high level math and physics, um, but also he's he's questioning the usage of certain kinds of terms, like what exactly do we mean by climate? And he's questioning our metrics. And I think anytime you get into that territory, it's very valuable, but but can be uncomfortable. And it, it's, it's definitely rewarding, assuming you know enough to clear things up at a certain point. Uh, but I thought he asked a lot of interesting questions, uh, just, just challenging the way we talk about the issue. So one of the issues that came up is this issue of a global average temperature or a global mean temperature anomaly. So average temperature would just mean thinking of it as a temperature mean temperature anomaly is deviation uh, from an average over a period of time. So we can 
go into why you would call it one versus another, basically the idea of averaging temperatures around the globe uh, over time. And we had a couple of discussions about whether this is a useful thing, to what extent it is. And I was uh, emailing back and forth with Stefan Han and Eric Dennis about this because I, I had them listen to it. I wanted to see what they thought. And uh, I thought Eric made a really, really good point. Uh, so I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read his email. Don't if, if there's anything wrong with this, don't hold him to it because, uh, well, it's not a final statement. But he writes... Is global average temperature a legitimate concept? Yes. Essex points out that global average temperature is not itself a temperature in the sense of characterizing an equilibrium property of a single integrated physical system. GAT doesn't have causal significance for the Earth in the same way the temperature of the air in a room does for stuff in that room. So I'm going to pause here as Alex. I found that really interesting in terms of the difference between like a, a real... Uh, temperature, which then you can say, okay, this will lead to this, versus something that's that's compiled and it, it doesn't have that kind of uh, significance. And then he goes on to say, GAT is more of an index like the Dow Jones, a global descriptor we use to keep rough tabs on a large heterogeneous system. I love how Eric writes. Uh, continuing, the Dow Jones index doesn't determine anything about individual companies. It's the other way around but it can still be a useful descriptor or tracking variable. It's no coincidence that if we hit a big recession, the Dow will go down. Similar observations apply to the reality of quote-unquote global climate. The onus is always on the person asserting the usefulness of this concept to show how it is useful for climate, for example, by reference to things like ice ages or warm periods that are correlated over the globe, but we cannot dismiss it a priori. To your question, if the GAT did in fact track Hansen's non-trivial prediction, say a 4 degrees Celsius increase over a certain period of time, yes, that would be serious positive evidence. He is free to set the terms, he is in Hansen, like by defining the GAT, and critics are free to assess what was the inherent difficulty of the prediction task. That is, did, he, did Hansen actually make a significant uh, prediction? And it's not trivial to predict GAT over long time spans. It is easy, however, to confidently state a prediction and then to be proven utterly wrong 20 years later. Uh, as a parenthetical, I was, this is Alex, I was at Harvard yesterday, and I had made the point about the models and shown the drastically wrong predictions, and there was an apologist in the audience who's just saying, oh, well, you know, you can't expect to be exactly right over 20 years. In fact, uh, hopefully this recording will be up, but uh, the, the professor who responded to me just said, oh, well, it's not, you know, really fair to do it over 20 years, you know, climate is long-term, and so first of all, we've been making these predictions for 35 years. They have made discrete predictions for 10 years in the future. And uh, they made, anytime someone makes a confident, bold prediction, you can hold them to that. So I really like that, uh, that point, and I certainly want to hold people to it. So Eric, Eric liked the analogy I made about inflation, and I, I still stand by that as a good kind of question. So Eric wrote, you asked a great question with your inflation analogy. Thank you, Eric. The answer is that there's a bunch of things we could predict about the climate given certain external forcing scenarios. So that's ways of impacting the climate. So if the sun started emitting twice as much light energy as it does now, there's little doubt that the model predictions, namely that the Earth would start to seriously heat up, would be borne out. But slight changes in CO2 levels are more like asking, what if the government decided to subsidize Ford versus subsidizing Chrysler with $20 billion this year? 
what would be the effect on cars produced 30 years from now? No macroeconomist would pretend his model could answer that question. So that's pretty, pretty great analogy about, yeah, they, they stick, you know, a couple tens of billions of dollars. Now it has significance in a certain way, but in terms of the, the, uh, the auto economy 30 years from now, it's not the biggest driver. And, and Eric's definitely somebody who helped me very early on in my thinking about this is you just realize the concept that all of these systems have multiple drivers and it's all about the direction and magnitude of each driver. So it's possible for it to be a small driver and not a big deal or a huge driver and a big deal. And it's really important to distinguish which one instead of talking about climate change. So hopefully that helps you. So I, I think it is with just the global average temperature, global mean temperature, normally there's something there, but we have to be careful how we use it. We need to be thinking of it as an index and realize that it is not a, a physical thing uh, itself. And I think Dr. Essex pointed out with, with many things how we, we kind of take, we treat these things as physical entities uh, when, they're, uh, when they're not. So that, that was a good takeaway I had. And I think in general, when we hear these concepts in climate, we should ask ourselves, well, what exactly does this mean? What do you mean when you say the climate or climate change? Any of these, the, the Earth's temperature, we broke the climate, or the climate is ruined. Those are the more obviously wrong things, but even those are just used all the time. And again, I was at Harvard yesterday, and it was, uh, it was at the, the law school, an event I did, and then I was followed up by a uh, professor who, who commented on what I said and then got a question or two, although unfortunately we had one of those guys who's the non-question questioner who had a three-part non-question, uh, but in his three-part non-question, he basically made uh, committed all of the same fallacies that that we have with this issue, including treating the climate like an entity that can be broken or destroyed. And the same thing with the earth. You know, the, a lot of these questions are good to apply to the earth. When someone talks about the earth, what exactly do they do they mean? Uh, my friend Jordan Breen once caricatured the opposing position as you know the earth is just this uh, giant smiley face. It's just like this this happy face that's this this one animal or something. And, it's definitely not that way. So whenever we're dealing with these systems, it's important to think about what are the real entities? When are we describing something that is really a thing? When are we describing a collection of things? What is our purpose in doing so? So again, I think uh, Professor Essex was, was very helpful in raising those kinds of things. One more thing from Eric that I thought was a good, uh, good summary because uh, one, one of the things I look for in people that I work with at CIP is just being able to articulate very, very, very clearly what's going on. So with, uh, with Stefan and Eric, I think they're, they're both fundamentally very good at doing that. And uh, Eric describes the weakness of the climate models, and he's summarizing what Essex said, but I found this to be a helpful summary. The weakness of the climate models in really describing the dynamics of the troposphere from basic physical principles. He observes, and he here is uh, Essex, observes that they fail to do that. The models are not at all a straightforward application of known laws to the swirling masses of wet air extending a couple miles above the Earth's surface, that is the atmosphere. This system is inherently too complicated to model by reference to basic principles alone. If you limit yourself to the rigorous physical laws they do include in their models, but without any extra manual adjustments and ad hoc fixes, then you would conclude the surface temperature of the Earth is, he says, 140 degrees Fahrenheit. 
that is radically different from what it actually is. So these special ad hoc adjustments, not just the well-tested physical properties, are extremely important in determining what the models predict. All this talk of it's just basic physics is nonsense, either utterly ignorant of the nature of the models or patently dishonest. It is important to emphasize as well that the main driver is not the greenhouse effect, but the funky, somewhat arbitrary set of feedbacks they choose to include in the models. So I found that helpful as well. So thanks to Eric Dennis for taking the time to, to listen to the interview and share his thoughts. And I thought that I thought correctly that he could give a, a much better analysis of some of the, the specific issues than I could. All right, it is time to wrap up. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Still working on my uh, political platform. It's, it's going very well. I'm, I've been speaking a huge amount the past couple, couple months, but I am basically home well, I have only two speeches in the next month or month and a half, which should be really great uh, for writing. It'll be nice to, to take a little bit of a vacation as well. Um, but anyway, you should see some, some good writing there. And of course, make sure to follow us on social media. So there is on Facebook and Twitter, there is the Alex Epstein account, I Love Fossil Fuels account, I Love Nuclear account. And what am I forgetting? Oh, Center for Industrial Progress account. That one is, is, is definitely important. All right. Hope you're enjoying the episodes. Definitely. Again, alex at industrialprogress.net. I'd love to hear feedback. I'm generally getting very good feedback. I've been recommending Power Hour a lot recently, so our, our listenership is, is growing. Definitely recommended to other people. I think aside from the moral case for fossil fuels book, this show is the thing that, that we do that has the most enthusiastic following. So if, if you like it, uh, make, sure to, make sure to let me know so that we keep doing it. All right, next week we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.